This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait. Belief started in the fourth grade. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude. And I had this nagging feeling. A great belief system. I was capable of so much more. An action every single day. In all the pursuits that we have in our lives, I think there's an element of suffering. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision. Never give up on yourself. That's when greatness happens. The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland. Welcome to the Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and today I have the privilege to interview Dr. Anne Marie Knott. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We go way back. We go uh, <laughs> way back to what? Maybe last, what was that, Thursday? Last, yeah, that something like that? Last Thursday. That's last right. Thursday. I was fortunate enough to go to Washington University and see you speak at, at an event for entrepreneurs and business leaders and uh Afterwards, I was the guy that came up, introduced myself, and said, I got to have you on the circuit of success. And and now here we are. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about a lot of great stuff. You've, uh, you're helping tons and tons of people out there doing my research. It's neat to see what you're doing. But uh, for our listeners that may not know who you are, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, what made you the woman you are today? <laughs> um I'm completely baffled by that question. Let's see. <laughs> uh, I started out, my career was in... Um, aerospace, defense electronics. I was perfectly happy in that job. I thought we got to do really cool things all the time. I went to get my PhD thinking that I would teach at UCLA or USC at night, which is what a lot of my colleagues were doing. They moved my group to Tucson in the middle of that, and um, I became an academic full-time looking at uh, some of the issues I saw when I was working in industry. Wow. And so grew up, you grew up in California. No, no, no. I grew up in, I was born in Little Silver, New Jersey, and oh. I moved to Vegas when I was 10. Oh my gosh. Yes. How was that growing up in Vegas? Awful. <laughs> Sin City, right? <laughs> now, were your parents, were they in, you know, professors or anything? No, what, no academics okay. in my family anywhere no, that I can think all. of. No. And what, what do you think drove you to do that? Well, one was just because my colleagues were teaching at UCLA and USC at night. And I mean, get better than teaching college, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A lot of good people. Yeah, I just didn't think I would do it full time until they until they moved us to Tucson. And then I said, huh, I think I will. So you're doing a lot of work in the R&D world, which we'll get into in a little bit. But um, what are your passions? I mean, what what gets you going? What gets you up every day? Get you fired up? Because uh, if you don't mind, you, you basically get up and you get on an airplane. You're here <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Go back to Southern California, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you're you're teaching the future of America here at WashU. So, obviously, that's there's a passion there. So, what are those passions? What gets you going in the morning? So, I'm a nerd <laughs> or a geek. Yeah. Um, honestly, what gets me most excited is my research. I love I love it when I get new data. I love thinking about new questions. I love finding the answers. And what I love about teaching is I get to communicate the answers and hopefully make a difference, get people to adopt the things that I learn and um, change the world. So what's that process look like for you? So you get up in a day and and you're going to do your research. I mean, are you you going to work? You got an office at home? I mean, where are you doing this? Where are you rolling your sleeves up and making it happen? Uh, I can work anywhere. So a lot of my work gets done on planes. The nice thing about planes is you're strapped to a seat and you can't be distracted. (laughs) Nice thing for having Wi-Fi. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, though, I um, that's um, a blessing and a curse because it, you can get sucked into 
the internet easily, yeah. right? So I find that I'm best if I, uh, just, I I get a lot of reading done there. The some of the tasks that I hate most I get done there. So grading, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and then I always have my laptop with me wherever I go, so I yeah. can um, analyze data. So what uh, I, I'm a big believer. My dad always told me the people you surround yourself with, the books you read, are going to make you a better person. You know, five years from now, you're around amazing people uh, at WashU and other parts of your life, I'm sure. But what is it about, especially for those of us here in St. Louis that are listening? What is what is it that makes Washington University so great? Oh, oh, it's fabulous. Um, I well, one the colleagues uh, and two the students, and then three is the alumni network. Um, talking first about my colleagues, um, I'd been at, should I talk about my other school? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I'd been at Wharton for a number of years <laughs> before I came here. And what I, so the easiest way for me to talk about what's special about WashU is uh, to draw the comparison. So um, when I came here, I found that my colleagues were in every day. We, at, at the time, we were all on one floor in one building. Um, and so we were running in, into each other all the time. Everybody's always in their office, as I said, they're always working on research, um, and you just have great conversations in the yeah. hallways. Yeah. Then you get the kids. Uh, yeah, I do, the and students. they're very, yeah, they're exceptionally bright, which yeah. is really fun. Um, so they're actively engaged. You can teach them almost anything, and they will be curious, uh, will work hard to try to understand it, uh, yeah. and will make you think more carefully about yeah. it. Well, it makes you want to do your work even more, right? When, yeah. when it's making a difference in people's lives yeah. and they're no, running right. with it. And so, and then the alumni network, you talked about that. Yeah, so, it, uh, so it's great. Whenever I need to find someone that can help me um, research some kind of question inside firms, um, they help me, the development office helps me get in touch with them. Um, and yeah, it's, they're a great source of data. And, Got it. Uh, Insights. So before we dive into the RQ work that you're doing, which I was not familiar with before this, uh, I'm familiar with EQ and IQ, but not <laughs> RQ, uh, which is good. But um, have you define these words for me, if you will? Because I think I think it sets a, a good uh, kind of framework for people that are listening to what what the way you think. So how do you define success? Oh, that's a great question. I should have had my, that on the top of my head, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think my definition of success always evolves, yeah. right? Um, so you, I generally set it a goal of some sort. Um, success would be accomplishing that goal. But once I, what, what you find, of course, is that once you achieve one goal, that you, there's other ones that yeah. are out there. Yeah. So I guess success would be continually evolving new sets of things to accomplish. Yeah. And I think a lot of people too, so many people in today's world, I think define it by, you know, money or certain success like that. And mm -hmm. I think the more successful you get, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but it, it's way less about that stuff and more about the impact and the influence right. and all the stuff that you have. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. It is really heady, yeah. <laughs> but it's a huge sense of responsibility to have yeah. an audience. Yeah, right? it is. It is. So, uh, what about leadership? How would you define leadership? Oh, um, I guess I would, well, there's all kinds of great books on leaders. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I should defer to all those, but uh, uh, to my mind, a leader is somebody who has a tremendous vision and, and can get people to want to follow it. I like it. I like it. Uh, so you are the author of How Innovation Really Works, something about the, the trillion dollar R&D 
uh, industry, and there's a lot of stuff going on in that. But talk to us about that book. I mean, there's a lot of work, a lot of probably blood, sweat, and tears went into that. Hopefully no blood, but sweat and tears <laughs> went into that. Yeah. And uh, But talk to us about that. What, what made you want to write the book? So I was presenting a, the impetus, the real impetus for the book was I presented um, a piece of my work on RQ and um, after the t after to an academic audience. And after that, somebody walked up to me and, and said, this is a book. You should write a book. So that happened about five years before the book actually came out, but that got me started. Thank you. Got you thinking. Yeah. But the start of the research itself was um, when I was working at Hughes, uh, we were acquired by General Motors and uh, they were changing the way that we were doing R&D. Now, we had been a p private company, and we had fabulous R&D um, organization. The customer, once I asked our customer once, so it would have been a government customer, and I can't talk about them, but uh, I asked them once, you know, why do you, when do you pick us versus the other guys? And they said, well, I pick you when I don't know what I want. Huh. <laughs> and I pick the other guys after you tell me what I want because then they can build it more cheaply. So we, wow. yeah, so it was just such a fabulous place to be. So um, General Motors comes in and um, tries to run it financially, basically. Um, and I was watching all the changes they were making and I said, this is, you know, this is going to permanently and irreversibly uh, degrade our R&D capability. But the problem at the time was there's no way to demonstrate that because there was no good measure of R&D yeah. capability. So that was kind of my holy grail. I stumbled on that measure 10, you know, 10 years later when I was doing research. Um, and I said, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is exactly the right measure. Um, and uh, pretty much ever since that time, a lot of my work has been trying to understand what, uh, you know, what makes people high and low on this measure. I'm Brett Gilliland with Circuit of Success. We'll be right back. I am sitting today with my buddy, Ryan Luchtefeld. How you doing? What's up, Brett? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Ryan Luchtefeld at Delmar Financial. I forgot to mention where you're at, but by now everybody knows that. Oh, of course. Everybody of course. knows that. So we're going to talk some mortgages. We're going to talk basketball as always, but let's start with the, uh, the mortgage. Biggest thing, I was just in a client meeting yesterday, and um, this came up in a meeting. And so the, uh, the individual talked about their mortgage they have. They plan on being in this house for a while, but it's a balloon which means it's going to expire and expire, but it's going to expire in a couple years. And so what do you say about that? I mean, yeah. what, what are the options? Yeah, absolutely. And we see it all the time. Uh, there, people had to get into balloons for whatever reason. They chose to get into a, a balloon, which, as you said, it's a mortgage that typically lasts for five years is a, is a typical time, and then, it, and then it ends. You have to pay it off. Whatever's left off, uh, left to be paid at the time has to be paid, and typically people refinance. Well, if their balloon is expiring in one or two years, I would encourage people to look at it now because we can lock them into a fixed rate now. Uh, or if we have to get them into another short-term mortgage because they're only going to be in the house for another five or six years. We look at all of those factors. And the key thing you said it yourself is how long they're going to be in the house. And if they're going to be in there in a long time and they have a balloon that's expiring in a couple of years, I highly suggest they look at locking in that interest yeah. rate now. And that's simply because the interest rates, we think, obviously you and I don't know this, but we think they're going to be higher. So you'd rather have a lower interest rate than a higher interest rate, right? Absolutely. And, and the thing that I tell people all the time in the market that we're in, where are rates going to be? We don't know. We don't know. However, what I think I can say with certainty is there's a lot more room for them to go up than there is for them to go down. Right. You know, we're now sitting at, let's say it's four four and a half percent on average for interest rates. The lowest they've ever been and the lowest they'll probably ever go is maybe 3.5%. That's a percent lower than where we're at today. 
they can be at six, seven percent also in two years. Yep. That's two to three percent higher than where we are today. That makes my point that there is more room for them to go right. up than there is for them to go down. Very big deal. So if I'm uh, looking at a house, I know we've talked about this in the past, but maybe for those that missed the show, I'm uh, I'm driving down the road. I'm like, gosh, you know, I want to buy this house or I want to buy that house. Does it make sense for me to go get the house first or try to get the house first? Or does it make sense to call Ryan Luchtefeld first? I always encourage people to get us involved as soon as possible. Why not? We don't cost you any money. I, I don't get paid by the hour. I get paid when you close your loan. So if you call us and you're thinking about it, but you're not real sure, but you have some questions, why not lean on us to ask those questions? So definitely call us. Get pre-approved if you're ready for that step. If you're not even ready for that step and you just have some questions, give us a call. We'll be happy to sit down with you. Uh, and again, it's no cost to you for you to sit down with so us. So just some time. And I would assume if I want, whether I want to buy a $300,000 house or a $150,000 house, whatever the number is, um, the pre-approval part is, is key to let me know if, hey, can I even afford the $300,000 house or can I afford the $500,000 house, right? You yeah, guys absolutely. take us through that process. Absolutely. And there's two things there. There is being pre-approved and that's us saying, yes, you can buy a $300,000 house and we'll finance that $300,000 house. That's part of it. But probably a conversation we have more than that is, do you want the payment associated with a $300,000 house? Do you realize what that payment is going to be? And that's one of the things we walk people through. And we actually have a very good, and I'd love to share it with people, a very good phone app, an app for your phone that has a very good calculator on it. I get frustrated all the time with people who look at calculators online and come to me thinking that they're going to have a $1,000 a month payment yep. for that $300,000 house. And my response always to them is, yeah, I'd like that too, but that's not reality. <laughs> right. So they need to come to us, sit down with us, so we can give them an accurate picture on what their payment's going to yeah, be. Yeah, because you're looking also the insurance, you're looking at taxes, you're looking at everything to give me an all-in number, right? Everything. The last thing I want you to do is be surprised. Yep, yep. Because it is. It's always probably twice as much as what everybody thinks, right? Quite often, quite often. So let's, uh, let's talk about some important stuff here. Basketball. March Madness is coming up. And uh, so I'm going to have you predict every single conference – no, we're not going to do that. You know a lot about what kind of type of basketball. Well, yeah, if, if you ask me who's going to win the NCAA tournament, my, my response would probably be, I have zero idea, <laughs> but I do know who might win the third grade O'Fallon Parks and Rec Basketball right. League that's right. going to be coming up here in a couple weeks as well. We got a first round bye, by the way. I don't know if you guys did or not. Well, we didn't, but but I think we play you in game two, maybe, and, uh, and uh, looking forward to a rematch. All right, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. So let's. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, you played basketball at St. Louis University here in St. Louis, and you had one of those nights, the the Sunday selection show, right? A lot of us, especially when we're younger, we turn it, we tune in, we watch that. It's cool to see these kids been working their you know butts off all all year. They're sitting there with their team, their coaches, their family. They get picked, right? You got to do that. Tell us about that. What was that experience like? Uh, it, was, it was a highlight of my life. There, there's no doubt. It's something that I look back and, and will always remember. Um, luckily, we had uh, your friend, Larry Hughes, <laughs> on the team, which, which he was a big asset to us. So we, which you did score more points than him in his career. In his career, his one-year career compared to my <laughs> four-year career, yes. I think I beat him by about 20 points. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, we, we thought we were in. We had had a good year. We beat Illinois that year, who ended up winning the Big Ten. So we thought we were going to be in the NCAA tournament. Well, we all packed into our room and watched it on the big screen, and we're all excited, and the media is there, and, and they go through most of the tournament, and all we, our name hasn't been called yet, and they're in the last region. And 
really, we, we knew we were going to be anywhere from a seven seed to a 10 seed. And there's only one game left that's a seven seed or a 10 seed. Mm. And it's the last game they show. And so even though we thought we were in, we all got a little bit nervous. Wow. And so we finally showed up as a 10 seed, uh, played University of Massachusetts in the first round, uh, beat them, uh, and then got the, got the joy of playing Kentucky, who ended up winning the national championship that year. And uh, we, uh, we were down 29 at half against Kentucky. <laughs> so who was uh, paid a picture for us? Who was on Kentucky's team at that time? They had Padgett. Uh, they had um, Jeff Shepard, uh, Nazi Muhammad, Hashimu Evans. Uh, they were loaded. Yeah. They were loaded, and and the game was in Atlanta, which became That's Kentucky Wildcat, East. Yeah, uh, and uh, they had actually just won the ACC tournament in the same building at the Georgia Dome the week before. Uh, not that they needed that familiarity with the building, right. but uh, it probably didn't hurt them. But uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, even though we got absolutely destroyed by yeah, them. That's all right. Well, at least they won the national championship. It wasn't just some random team to beat you, right? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. I always, <laughs> I, I'm. I don't get the, the, the people who say, I don't care what happens to the team that beat us after they beat us. I yeah, disagree. No. I think it makes you look right. better, even though we lost by 29. That's, that, right. that, that's it, a side it's... note. But I think it does make you look better if the team that beat you went on. Absolutely. Well, and you got a story now to talk about it all these years later. So walk through, what's that What's that like? So you went to, where was your first round game at? It was, I guess, the same place. It was in Atlanta. So you guys get down there, you travel, you got the team hotel. You're practicing. Have you, had you ever played in a huge stadium like that before? Uh, we had played Illinois in, in the Dome that year. Okay. Uh, so we at least had, had that reference point. Um, so that's got to be different when you're shooting the ball, I mean, preparation, everything, right? It totally is. Totally is. You have no background. You have no background because the, the building is so big. But, um, yeah, so we went to Atlanta, played in the Georgia Dome. Like I said, we beat uh, Massachusetts in the first round. Um, big win. Big win, absolutely. A heck of a lot of fun. And that was on Friday. So you got you got all night Friday to to uh, have fun, and Saturday you practice the, uh, at the dome the next day as well. So you got to at least do that, uh, and then we suit up, and the game's getting ready to start. And you know you're doing all the cliches. Why not us? Why not right. us? You know. And um, well, we figured out pretty quickly why not us right. because we weren't quite as good as they were. <laughs> yeah, get punched in the nose pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, uh, any predictions this year? I mean, you said you don't know. I don't know. But let's each make, each make a prediction. Who's going to win the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament? Well, I hate I hate to be that guy. Um, You're going to say the D word. Aren't I you? hate to be that guy, but if if Zion Williamson comes back healthy. Uh, I could definitely see them cutting down the nets. I don't necessarily want that. I'm not a Duke hater, but I love to see other people do it. But um, uh, he is a, a freak of an athlete that I don't know if we've ever seen before. Yeah, you talk about ticket sales and jersey sales. I know you've seen a lot of that on ESPN this year. What's your take on that? I know this isn't a basketball show, but thoughts on uh, – it's just a random question, but thoughts on basketball players or any college athlete athlete getting paid, what's your philosophy? It's probably evolved over the years. I, I don't. Um, I think. I think it's unfair that people get their likeness used and get nothing for that. I, I shouldn't say nothing. I, I don't like that phrase as well because they are getting a very good opportunity to travel and get treated like kings, and the opportunity to get an education if they if they at take a top notch school at a top notch school. Um, but when people are making millions of dollars off of Johnny Manziel jerseys or Zion Williamson's jerseys and and they're, they're not getting uh, reciprocated for that. I, I think there's a way, and I think they will come up with a way to at least pay 
out something for that situation. Yep. So you said Duke. I'm going to go then. I'm going to say the guys that beat you. My family's big Kentucky Wildcat fans, so I'm going to go Kentucky. Probably have no chance, but that's who I'm going to say is going to win. That they got a good chance. I, I would root for Duke against Kentucky. I'm not a big Calipari guy. Okay. Um, right. But uh, no, they got a good chance. It'll be fun. It always is. And that's as right. little as I follow college basketball anymore, mainly because I'm going to my kids' third grade games or sixth <laughs> right. grade games. Uh, usually at night. Uh, it's always fun watching into the Wood So where do our listeners find more of Ryan Luchtefeld at Delmar Financial? Yeah, please uh, find, find us online, obviously, at delmarmortgage.com. You can always call me, uh, and it's my personal cell phone. So if you have any questions, do not hesitate to call 618-593-3608. That's the best place to reach me. And uh, download the app. You can go to the App Store, assuming on... Uh you There's Apple phones, and then other people, I guess, some people use Samsung-type phones. Some people do. Yeah, you can go to the Play Store. You can find our, our app. Just just uh, search for Delmar Mortgage and download it, and then give me a call. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Ryan, and thanks to you and Delmar Financial for all you guys do for us, and uh, look forward to having you on the show next month. Sounds good. Welcome back to the Circuit of Success. I'm Brett Gilliland, your host. Let's dive back into this week's guest. Talk to us about RQ. So we know what IQ is. Most of us know what EQ is, emotional intelligence, right. how you deal with relationships. But introduce us and our listeners to RQ. What oh, is that? I'd be delighted to do that, Brett. Let's do it. <laughs> so first of all, IQ and EQ are at the individual level. And RQ, which stands for research quotient, is at the company level. So I like to tell people that the way to think about IQ RQ is that it's the company equivalent of individual IQ. It's how smart they are. So individuals who are smart can solve more problems per minute. Um, companies who have high IQ RQ, um, can solve more technical problems per dollar, so to speak. Per dollar. Yeah. Okay. And so how, how do you even, so a guy like me that doesn't have a brain like that, how do, how do you even come up with that? How do you create that? And then now that you've created it, what is, if I'm a company, I'm a chief technology officer, I'm whoever uh, leading that firm, how do I then make it actually work? Oh, you know? Um, and I know that's probably a three-hour yeah, yeah, setting. No, but, no, there's, yeah. th I think there were a couple of questions, so I only remember the last one. <laughs> that's fine. Go with the last one. Uh, well, the first one was how I came up with it. That's going to be that wouldn't be a very interesting story. Okay. I don't think so. Um, so I don't think we want to go there. But um, how can um, chief technologies officers make it work? So the the first thing, the most important thing that your audience should know is that. Um, I have this measure for all publicly traded companies going back to 1972. And the really disturbing thing that I found was that companies' R&D productivity has declined 65%. Wow. And um, what's really important about that is that that seems to be the explanation for why we have stagnant growth. So if you actually track, um, if you actually plot companies' RQ, Across nominal GDP growth, they line up pretty closely. Hmm. So I think this is, if I can get companies to restore their RQs to back where they were in the 70s, then I have a feeling we can re revive the growth that we had back from that time. Hmm. So, so would you say the R&D being down is a reason that the numbers are down? Uh, so instead of looking at it, maybe if I'm trying to save money, is actually investing in, in the R&D is actually going to make you more money versus, quote unquote, saving you money. That's exactly right. So one of the things that happened in the – so a lot of my work has been trying to understand why RQ has declined so much. Okay, um, So one of the things I think is behind that is the fact that around the 70s, companies started being managed financially 
Um, and uh, what happened as a result of that was that companies couldn't see chief technology officers couldn't show what the returns to R&D were because there wasn't a measure right. like this. Um, so whenever they were up against advertising for dollars, they always lost out. So um, one of the biggest findings I have from my research is that um, uh, out outsourced R&D has an RQ of zero. So um, every dollar of R&D that you spend, uh, that you outsource, um, has no impact on your revenues. And so wow. I think financially managing firms push them in that direction. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's really all about the mighty dollars, what they're trying to save. In reality, that doesn't work. They're actually no, right. costing right. themselves yeah. lots of money. Right, and when I talk to CTOs, they, one of the frustrations that they have is they said, you know, when I came in this company, um, R&D used to be viewed as the driver of growth, and now it's viewed as an expense. Yeah, well, you, you hear the word R&D, you used to hear a lot more. Right? I just don't think you hear it even as much. Oh, just is that the, right? The, the, no, okay. I don't think so. No, I, yeah, it's hard. Well, you're, I wouldn't you're know in that because yeah. I, I live and breathe R&D. <laughs> like that's all I talk but about. But I can tell you that spending hasn't gone down. So how is growth, I read somewhere last night too in my research, is growth, innovation, and profitability. Okay. How are all those related? So R&D, so companies with high RQ have more growth for, per, per measure of R&D, okay? Um, uh, those, so you can take that exact same, uh, the underlying measure allows you to figure out how much profits would be from that, so how, from the revenue growth. Okay, so there's a level at which you don't want to spend more R&D because the dollars, the additional revenue dollars generate you less profit than the R&D itself. Um, but market value is also tied to growth, right? Um, that's kind of the fundamental difference between. So market value is fundamentally the net present value of all future profits. Okay. So if profits are higher, then uh, market value is higher. And if growth is higher, market value is higher. Got it. So what advice would you give to the, the CTO listening to this today? And, and just, you know, maybe they say, gosh, I, I'm not going anywhere with our leaders. I can't get it oh. to happen. Is there any kind of mentorship or advice that you would give that person to how to kind of open that, uh, open that door and get the conversation started? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so I thought you were going to ask how I could in inform the CTO. So we'll the do that thing, one too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so obviously the first of that would be read the book. Right, exactly. <laughs> but yes, I mean, that's one of the struggles that I have is getting the, um, getting, you know, the, uh, you, I might have CTOs who are completely embrace, embrace the RQ idea, but they have trouble they have trouble getting that um, to the CEO and the CFO. Um I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. I'm trying to help them. So uh, one of the things you may remember from the talk is I realized that one of the one of the challenges CTOs face is that uh, investors pressure them to cut R&D, basically. Yeah. And so that's what they're hearing from the CEOs and the CFOs. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to educate the investor audience so that they actually know how to value R&D. So yeah. one of the fascinating things is that Warren Buffett has always stayed away from tech stocks. Precisely because he didn't, you know, he's a value-based investor and he right. didn't have a way to value R&D. So I'm now providing that, I believe. Nice. So you going to call Warren? I would love Warren to call me. <laughs> <laughs> Warren, I'm sure you're listening, so give her a call. Uh, give her a call here. Um, so when, go ahead. And he's probably holed up at home, right? Because he's yeah. in that same freezing. Exactly. Yeah. It's minus five out or whatever it is right now. We're recording this. So it's a little cold, but I know it looks beautiful behind us. Uh, control the controllables. When you hear me say that, where does your mind go? Oh, in, with respect to R&D? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, the first thing that you can control is you can um, uh, you can know the right amount to spend on R&D. So that, that's one of the cool things this measure does. So it turns out that 65% of companies are actually over-investing in R&D. You know, in the press, you're always reading that companies should be spending more. Um, and in general, that advice is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the reason is because companies are our cues have declined so much, right? So if they were spending X in, you know, 20 years ago, X is no longer the right number. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that you control. The second, um, I, second thing you control is whether to outsource or not. <laughs> Which we heard that's not a, a smart thing. Yeah, yeah, thing. you definitely don't want to be doing that because basically what you're doing is you're, um, you're, you're giving out, you're giving up your capability. So I, um, I was. Uh, discussing this result in one of my classes, and a, and a student, this was in an executive MBA class, and a student said, you know, that's exactly what happened in his company. That um, what happened is they started outsourcing an activity because they thought it would be more cost effective, and then they found out that they didn't even have enough com capability to outsource it anymore. Wow. <laughs> so they had to buy that the company that they were outsourcing back. Hmm. Yeah, so basically, you know, I've heard running businesses for 18 years now is it's not an expense problem, it's a revenue problem. And I would even maybe take it a step further now that it may be an investment in growth problem. Is that? Are you talking about R&D? Yeah, just, just in general. If I, oh, so R&D is certainly part of the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the puzzle, right? right. And so uh, I think so many times if we're trying to pinch pennies and these financials are coming in and they're saying, well, let's not do R&D anymore. Well, that's that's an expense problem, but they're oh, not yeah. looking at it as a pure investment. Oh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So one CTO I, I talked to said that, you know, he wanted his legacy to be that the company now treated R&D as an investment rather than an expense again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's I, this is a much, much smaller scale. But I remember I was 24 years old. I made X amount of dollars that year. And I remember going home to my wife and saying, I'm going to hire uh, uh, an assistant and like a, you know, a person on my team to help and and do things my first ever employee at 24 and I'm like she kind of looks at me like well what you have to spend is like that that's a lot of what we make right yeah, and right. so <laughs> but it was an investment because right. that happened and that was one of the best decisions I ever made but it was looking at it as an investment my point to that is for our people listening is so many times we try to look at what is the bottom line and we don't bet on ourselves or we don't take the risk and we don't see where the growth can actually go if we just invest the dollars. That's a great insight. Right? Yep. So again, much smaller scale. But so and while we're on that smaller scale, what, what advice would you have for people that are maybe the smaller business owner, like a lot of people here in St. Louis, that may, they don't have a lot of money for research and development? We can't, so we can't outsource it because that doesn't do anything for us. But how do they build a team and what do they do internally to focus on R&D, to grow revenue, to grow profits? So, so there's some firms that actually... There's some firms that R&D fits and others that it doesn't. So only about 40% of the companies in the United States do R&D. Okay. Um, how do you build a team? I, I think, I mean, the companies that I know that do R&D, that, that, that's, that's almost part of the founding team, right? And if, if you're something that's fundamentally going to benefit from R&D, you recognize that right off the bat. You know, you yeah. think about technology companies, they start off with the R&D team. Yeah, so really that's probably the CEO and the, yeah, exactly. the CEO, yeah, yeah. CFO, and the R&D Yeah, that's exactly team, right? right. So I have a yeah. friend who, uh, well, he's a friend now, but he was a student at the, he's a student when I first met him, and he's now on his uh, 
third venture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, he, and he's fascinating. Um, yeah. uh, I don't know whether I'm supposed to give a yeah, shout no, out or so, not. Yeah, yeah so Ryan Rick. So he started one of the first second generation genome sequencing firms here. And as you said, he would play, he fulfilled all those roles. You're listening to The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and we're going to dive right back into this week's interview. In Chapter 5 of, uh, of your oh, book. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Is this your favorite chapter? You must <laughs> no, I don't be. remember what's the chapter right, number well, snap onto. <laughs> so Chapter 5 of your book, you talk to uh, that companies need more radical innovation. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, what's that look like for companies with your work and just your research? What does that mean? I mean, obviously, we high level, I know what radical innovation means, but... When you're writing that chapter, what's that mean? Oh, okay. So um, radical innovation um, means that you're creating something that either is either new to the world or new to your market. So uh, what would be radical innovations? Uh, the iPod, when it wasn't actually right. – so it was the MP3, right? That yeah. would have been a radical innovation. Um, and so the kind of the conventional wisdom out there is that companies need more of that, that, um, you know, that that would give them higher RQ. Um, Radical innovations are tremendously important, but uh, what happens is they don't often generate a lot of the money for the companies, uh, in part because some radical innovations fail. But uh, the more important reason is that when companies do radical innovation, it means something uh, doesn't actually fit the the customers that they already serve. So they have to build everything from... breaking the mold. Yeah, they're breaking the mold. So they have to start everything from scratch. So for companies... um, So... I'm trying to think if I could come up with a good analog, but um, one of the values that Procter & Gamble has from doing R&D is that they already have this whole infrastructure to get the products out to you know the entire Millions, world, right? Yeah. Um, but if they deviate from that and don't do something in consumer packaged goods, like when they went into car washes, um, that doesn't exploit any of their capabilities. So it's hmm. not going to be as big a payoff for them yeah. as they do something in CPG. Yeah. Um, the other problem with uh, radical innovation is that sometimes um, it can take forever for something to get to market. So the story in the book is that, um, and people know part of the story, I'm sure, is that um, Percy Spencer was working inside Raytheon uh, next to a combat radar system. He had a candy bar in his pocket, realized it melted, mm. <laughs> and stumbled on stumbled on microwave cooking. Uh, and it took it took Raytheon 20 years to have that be commercially successful because Raytheon has absolutely no capability in consumer appliances, yeah. right? Um, and in addition, nobody needed, nobody knew they needed a, a microwave oven for right. anything, right? right. So. And now all of a sudden, here it is. They're everywhere. That's right. And sometimes it's just dumb luck, right? You have a candy bar in your pocket, and <laughs> sometimes right. it's through a lot of research, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. No, so, that, yeah, that's what's really fun about it, yeah. uh, research is that they have these serendipitous things. Yeah. And what, what advice would you give for, the again, those CTOs, those leaders, uh, maybe the CEO, that you have this idea, but you're the only one that believes it right now? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a tough problem, right? Um, if you're the CTO, it doesn't matter because you have control over the funds, I guess. And right. So you can fund it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, you think about what they call the, the distorted reality or distorted vision that Steve Jobs had. Is he would sit in a room with, you know, this and he'd have people that you'd walk out of the room and you actually believe something was invented before it was actually invented. I mean, so you talked about leadership early, having a clear vision. Yeah. 
and making it happen. I mean, would you agree that maybe that's that's the answer? Is you have to obviously firmly believe you believe you got to show your data that it actually is going to what you think is going to work, and it's something that fills a void in the world. Um, yes, I definitely agree with that. Um, Steve Jobs happened to be right on most things, yeah. <laughs> which is an advantage. There's people yeah. that can have that, you know, fervent belief something's right and actually turn out to be wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the, the things that I found in my research, and this wasn't you know wasn't anything that would be publishable, is that the firms with the highest RQ are often uh, founder run still, and it's because they have this razor sharp vision of what mm. the world actually needs and can get people to you know. A coalesce behind it. So they're certainly not the people that are managing to minimize dollars. They're doing exactly sure. what you did at 24, right? Yeah. Saying, you know, this is the way the world's going to go. And, you know, we're going to do these things to make sure it happens. They're just making a bet on themselves and their companies exactly and their people, right? right? right. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's, that's exciting. Um, how much is it? Maybe there's not an answer to this, but how much money should companies allocate toward R&D? Is there like a percentage? I mean, what's that no, like? No, that's the thing that's been happening over time is historically what companies do is they, um, they spend a percentage of sales on R&D. Okay. And they develop what's called industry rules of thumb. So, you know, if you if you look at particular industries, you'll see that pretty much they all fall within a couple of percentage of each other along that rule of thumb. Um, so you can have companies, although the smaller ones will have to spend more just because um, they can't, they don't have the scales the other guys do. Um, most of those rules of thumbs are wrong now because, again, RQ has declined so much. So semiconductor firms have the same rules of thumb, and they're all grossly overspending on yeah. R&D. So it turns out if you have RQ, you can actually identify the level of R&D spending, um, the optimal level of R&D spending. So that's the level of spending where if you if you spend another dollar of R&D, that's going to generate less than a dollar of profits. Yeah. So how do you, this is more personal stuff than it is about you know the, the world that you're researching, but how do you stay a student of the game to be on cutting edge and, and maybe try to be at or above what your peers are doing and, and make a difference in the world. What do, you, what do you personally strive or how do you do that and stay in the game every single day? Oh, well, first you have to love it. Yeah. <laughs> but you, yes, so you read everything. You read the stuff that's in the newspaper so you know what's going on in the world around you. You read the academic papers. You go to conferences to stay on top of what's happening in the academic world. And then, of course, for me, what's been really fun is the opportunity to to – speak with all the people who are actually doing R&D, yeah. right, to find out when, what are their challenges. And I'm also had the opportunity to get involved in policy making too. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So. so this is a question I ask every, every guest and it's a, it's around fears and this may be either personally, or it could be around fears that you've heard other leaders that you've either worked with or, or consult with, talk to, do research on. It's a, it's around again, fears. How many of the fears you put in your mind or their mind actually blew up to the magnitude you put them in your mind to be? <laughs> Probably none, right? I, yeah, I know that's why you asked that. That's question. why I asked the question because everybody does <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. They laugh and they say, well, none, right? And, right. Uh, but I think so many of us, right, are guilty of that is you, you, you sure. do something. I was just talking to a guy yesterday and he was, oh, I, I can't sleep. I'm looking up at the ceiling at night and I think this is going to happen. This is, and I'm like, listen. None of the fears that you're thinking right now are actually going to blow up into the magnitude you think they're going to be. I've heard it now 115 times, That's right? right. Is, but, but don't you think it's functional to actually have those fears? Because then what you do is you head off the problems that... that 100%. Oh, okay. And I like that ask question back because I do <laughs> believe that, but I'm trying to build the case for people that are listening all the time that 
none of whatever they're driving down the road yeah. or they're exercising right now is like whatever they're feeling in their mind for whatever that fear is there's a good chance that it probably won't happen. Yeah. But I agree because if you don't think about it, then you just you just go do and stuff. Then your and then your fears probably will happen. Yeah, right? and then you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But so it is hard. It's like how do you get over that? I don't know if you ever will. It's probably just the way we're made as humans. Um, but it, I know it's helped me when I'm in a tough situation to slow down and say, okay, I know my mind immediately went way off the reserve over here. <laughs> There's probably a better chance it's going to be somewhere in here of what's going to happen. Right. Lower that maybe that anxiety or that stress down a little bit. So uh, if you could look back, you could tell Dr. Anne Marie Knott of maybe 20 years ago, you could give her some advice. <laughs> what advice would you give her? I'm stumped. Right? I'm stumped. <laughs> um, let me think. Yeah. I just wish I'd done everything sooner. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> would you have taken more risk, do you think? I don't think I've been a risk avoiding person. Okay. Yeah. Um, no. I like it. I like that though. That means you kind of you're content with where you're at and what you've been doing, and and uh, yeah, I just wish I had built. more of it sooner, right? There's right. not enough runway left now. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a good point. I was just talking. My wife and I were just talking about this. Uh, I guess yesterday we had an impromptu lunch, and it was. Uh, uh, is all the things you want to go do is I think to our listeners again is we have to take action. So one of the circuits of success, uh, hence the name of the show, you have attitude, there's belief systems that we have, there's the actions that you have to take every single day, and then it ultimately gets you results, right? If you do those things, but yeah. you take away one of them, it doesn't work, right? If you take away your action, you can have the best attitude, the be best belief system in the world, but if you don't take action, right. it doesn't work. Right. So to, to your point of your runway, if other people are feeling that same thing, we have to take action today. So where can our listeners find more of Dr. Anne Marie Knott? <laughs> Let's see. Well, the book certainly. Right. That's, that's right. Amazon. And I'm assuming. OK, so Amazon and Barnes yeah, & Noble, yeah, all that that's, stuff. That's everywhere. Yeah. So um, uh, and of course, anytime you want to reach me, just go to my website at WashU. I like it. So Washington University here in St. Louis. You can uh, get the book as well, which she is the author of How Innovation Really Works. So I just want to thank you for coming in today and uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. And I know our listeners will find a great deal of value out of it. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Brett. It was a All pleasure right. to be thank here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Circuit of Success. I am your host, Brett Gilliland. And each and every single week, we're going to bring you a great guest, whether that's a, a business leader, a professional sports star, an author, Whatever it is, we're going to bring you as much as we possibly can to help you live your best life. We get to dive into the roads that these people travel, the, uh, the successes, the struggles, the fears that they've put in their own minds, and do what they've done to become successful. And so we look forward to bringing that to you every single week. If you want more on our firm, Visionary Wealth Advisors, check us out online at visionarywealthadvisors.com. You can also find the show's website at circuitofsuccess.com. We'll be back next week with another great guest on the Circuit of Success. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.